Have you ever had a friend or acquaintance, well, you, you, you're telling a story, something happened in your life. Uh, maybe, maybe you went on a trip. Um, you went to go see uh, you, you, neighbors and or friends or family. Um, I'm thinking of Claire's dad uh, traveling right now. So you're, you went to Taiwan. You went to Taiwan, a lovely, co- lovely country. I hear Taiwan is a country. Hashtag. Um, uh, anyway, oh, <laughs> snipers shoot. Is there any balloons floating overhead? Okay. Oh wow. Oh, that was horrible. Okay. Uh, and if you haven't been paying attention to global events, that might have all gone over your head. But uh, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, if I die suddenly or I am suicided, thrown off a building, I live in a three-story home. If I fall off of a four-story balcony, be suspicious, okay? Um, anyway. So you say, oh, I went to Taiwan and I had this wonderful time. I went to visit the national park and I, and I drove the perimeter of the thing and I, you know, I uh, you know, did all the sights. And you're telling your story about your wonderful vacation. And then your friend jumps in almost before you're even done and says, oh, well, that's nice. Uh, yeah, I just got back from an expedition to Antarctica and uh, I spent some time uh, ice camping on the, on the ice shelf. It was a Ross ice shelf, I can't remember. You know, and, uh, and I got to you know, watch the wildlife and the penguins and all of that. And, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, that, that's lovely that you, you had your tour in that highly developed nation, whereas uh, I went to real wilderness. Um, yeah. How do you feel when that friend does that? What are they doing? They're one-upping. Yeah, that's nice. You had that experience, but mine was so much better. And they may say it much more calmly or much more, you know, uh, smoothed over than that. I don't know about you, but the one-upper is one of the most annoying things that we can be in. And if you are in that place today, please repent and turn. (laughs) Where someone tells their story, but then another person immediately has to tell a story that's a little more over the whatever, a little more uh, true or not. Sometimes it's just embellished fish stories, as it were. But this idea of one-upping is something that we see uh, in culture, and it's a bad character trait. In the passage we are about to read, Paul has been one-upped by the false teachers in the the church at Corinth. These folks that may have had some Jewish roots, but were also claiming within the, the, the pagan society, the sophistry, a special way of speaking... And he has basically, basically, he's been put down by these folks saying, in fact, you shouldn't even listen to the message Paul gave. But what's at stake here is way more than whose vacation and travel plans were better. It was about the very message of who Jesus was and the character of the kingdom of God and what kind of character should we look for in leadership and what should we follow. And so in this passage, Paul takes on the one-uppers and does something incredibly subversive and unique. So I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 16 through 33. And, and last Sunday we read together the message. Today I'm just going to read to you from the NET, and then I will repeat it as we walk through the text. And I have to warn you, I preach in topics and in verse-by-verse series. And I like, I'm a Bible geek, I get into stuff, and I have to strip out so much because, you know, the preparation when you're reading through this, and if you are a Bible geek like me, you like to go down all the rabbit holes. Problem is, if I actually took you down all those rabbit holes, we would be in here for like a week-long lecture on every uh, chapter that we study in 2 Corinthians. So a lot of it's like slicing and dicing and being responsive to the Holy Spirit in this moment. So let's say, let's start at verse 16 here, and I'm going to read this to you, and it's a tradition to stand for the reading of Scripture. Obviously, if you can't, or it's too much, or you don't want to, fine, this is, this is Baptist church, it's, you're not forced to do it, Believer's Church. Um, there's no ushers walking around with canes and going to whack you if you don't, so uh, there's freedom. So Paul says, writing again, chapter 11, and he pivots in chapters 10 through 13, uh, and really sort of amps up the rhetoric. 
And he says to them, I say again, let no one think that I'm a fool. But if you do, then at least accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. He's responding to the boasts of those that are the one-uppers and against him. And he says, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I do not say the way the Lord would, since it is, as it were, foolishness. So he's warning them. He's doing a certain thing here that this is not necessarily the Lord's perfect way of speaking. Verse 18, since many are boasting according to human standards, I too will boast. For since you are so wise, you put up with fools gladly. For you put up with it if someone makes slaves of you. You put up with it if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone behaves arrogantly toward you, if someone even slaps you in the face. To my disgrace, I must say that we were too weak for any of that. But whenever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking foolishly here, I also dare to boast about the same thing. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? Of Abraham? So am I. Are they the servants of Christ? I'm talking like I'm out of my mind. I am even more so. With much greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with more severe beatings, facing death many times. Verse 24, five times from the Jewish authorities, I received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Uh, that's a way of punishing to try to kill, by the way. And this is Vancouver. I feel like I need to qualify that. Once I received a stoning, and my microphone is going all weird all of a sudden. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I spent adrift in the open sea. Verse 26, I've been on journeys many times, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my own countrymen, in dangers from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers at sea, in dangers from false brothers, in hard work and toil through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, many times without food, in cold and without enough clothing. Apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of anxious concern for all the churches. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is led into sin and I do not burn with indignation? 30, if I must boast, then I will boast about the things that show my weakness. And the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under... Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to arrest me, but I was let down in a rope basket through a window in the city wall and escaped his hands. Whew. Let's pray. Lord, what a passage. What a text. And God, while we read the word, knowing that it meant and had meaning to those early readers of this letter, and we are separated by time and cultures I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate this to us for this season, for our lives, that we might learn something from Paul's experience, their experience, and ask, what can it mean for me today, and how can I be formed by the Scripture? A countercultural narrative to push back against the totalizing claims of the empires around us, the power of the Word of God. May it be on display here in this place and in this moment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And if you are willing to, please say amen and be seated. And be seated. N.T. Wright says this about this passage. He says, at the start, earlier of the letter, Paul had spoken of the foolishness of God, which was wiser than humans. 
and the weakness of God which was stronger than humans in 1 Corinthians 1.25. And he goes on and says this, now in a spectacular burst of, quote, foolishness, he's going to boast of his weakness, thereby showing what it means to be truly wise and truly strong. Paul has been one-upped by the one-uppers, and he's about to one-up them and reveal the foolishness of one-upping all at once. That was a mouthful. I don't think I can say that again. He has one-upped the one-uppers, and now he's, gonna, he's been one-upped by the one-uppers. Now he's going to one-up them again and show the foolishness of one-upping and where the real power and beauty lies. At the strategy of tactics, this is a bold move. Uh, again, N.T. Wright, great commentary, by the way, if you want to follow along when we're doing a verse-by-verse series, get N.T. Wright, Corinthians for everyone. This is a bold move, and I wonder how many church leaders would dare to attempt the equivalent in their own settings. At the level of content, it is bolder still. He says, Paul is staking everything on his belief that the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus is indeed true, and that by letting it have its effect in every area of life, it will carry its own power. For indeed, that's why we're here today. That power continues to work throughout the cosmos, and we have responded or are curious that there's more, there's a better way to be human, that there's a God who cares, is not just abstract, deistically out there, wind the clock and let it go, but is engaged in creation. And Paul has been an apostle of that message. He encountered the risen Jesus Christ, and it changed the trajectory of his life religiously and culturally, and in every way you can measure And so Paul is responding to these super apostles, these that have come in and tried to claim that the message he shared of Jesus was missing some things and that he was ugly, he was was a bad speaker, and that he was culturally culturally off the mark. And so they have said that he is foolishness and, 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 and how he's approached this. And so Paul has spent most of this letter in a loving way, uh, spending time building up and rebuilding and strengthening the church. And most of the church has turned back towards that original apostolic teaching, the kirgma that, that he gave. But he's now dealing with some of those, those final strands and some of the false teaching that has occurred. And because of the nature of the rhetoric, he's actually displaying artful rhetoric here in his writing, contrary to the accusations. But he's also exposing why are these teachers false? And he begins to name some specific things. So let's just look at this. You can see in your piece of paper there, the outline today, it basically breaks into three main sections, embracing fools, verses 16 through 21. Paul's countercultural fool speech, which we won't finish all of today because it goes into chapter 12. And then, uh, and that's verses uh, 11, tw- uh, chapter 11, verse 22 through 29. And then we're going to look at the last few verses, 30 uh, through uh, 33 there. So we'll be looking at those three sections today. So first of all, let's begin to walk through the first, the second part of the fool's speech, the first part for today that we're going to discuss. And so he says in verse 16, if you're following along in a Bible or the paper taking notes, I'm just going to walk through the verses today. I said, let no one think that I'm a fool, but if you do, at least accept me as a fool so I may boast a little. He's saying, let me demonstrate the charges of me being foolish of my opponents, in fact, are not true, but I'm going to just, for the sake of argument, I'm going to assume the furniture in the room that they've given us, the, 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 the structure they've given us. I'm going to work with that. Even though I disagree with it, I'm going to work with it so I can show you that I indeed am the real deal, genuinely following Jesus, and I've given life for you and for his church, he's telling them. I'm not only going to expose the character of the false apostles, I'm going to show you what character and skills really matter in God's economy, he's telling them here. It's an upside-down kingdom. 
And our cultures are always a mixture of things that are blessed by God and things that God comes to critique and call us into a new way of being human. We don't assume it's all good. Paul is playing the role to make the point. And so what does he do in verses 17 and 18? He tells them, I'm going to adopt a foolish strategy here. And what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I'm telling you straight up, this is not the best way to communicate. I think this is hilarious. So the Bible is telling us what we consider the inspired word of God, authoritative, speaking to us is saying, oh, by the way, this part of the Bible, the part that we're about to read, this is not how the Lord would want us to go about it. But it's foolishness. And if I have to enter into the garbage in order to demonstrate the absurdity, I'll enter into the garbage at verse 17 there. And so he's taking on this, this, um, this position of the holy fool. Now, I want to say this. Within the church tradition and prophetic tradition, there is the story of the holy fool, of people who from time to time take on, demonstrate absurdity by being absurd. That's an, a, a, a classical way of dealing with um, a, a defense of an argument. And so he's doing this. He's taking the position of the holy fool. There's a story of Basil, who was the holy fool in, in sort of medieval, late, late medieval Russia as well. But this, taking on this position, he's doing that. There's prophets in the Old Testament that took on the position of the holy fool, where God inspired them to do things that were completely outside the norm, uh, laying naked in the middle of the town and on one side for so many days and turning to the other side, uh, all kinds of things like that in, in the Old Testament, these stories of the holy fool. So I'm going to take on the brokenness of prideful humans to show a deeper truth. Paul will boast, but he's naming it as the kind of boasting I'm about to do is not the ideal way of speaking. But I will play the game in order to expose the game and to bring through, hopefully, some people to new light. Verse 18, since many are boasting according to human standards, I will boast too. For since you are so wise, and you can see he's goading them, like he's been so pastoral, so Canadian, and then we get to chapters 10 through 13, and it just goes out the window. He goes full American. It's crazy town. <laughs> he says, I, I, I'm going to boast, but I'm going to name it, and this is not the way to do it. And he said, since many of you, verse 18 and 19, will boast, I will do too. Since you are so wise, and since you put up with fools gladly, if that's how I have to communicate to you, I will become the court jester. And he says, I'm going to enter the mess. In fact, he says, Katasar, according to the fallen sinful inclinations. In fact, he's saying, I'm sinning in some ways in doing this. Lord, have mercy on me. In fact, Ben Witherington says this about this verse, this section. He says, the implication is that when one is converted, one ought to give up such superficial criteria for judging people that these folks were doing, these false teachers and some at Corinth. And he says, here is evidence against that the Corinthians were inadequately socialized converts they still elevated things by the criteria that they had imbibed from the rhetoric infatuated, the storytelling culture of the Roman Corinth. That they had become Christians, but they still were mostly living out of their own cultural values. Some aligned with the Lord, of course, because the Spirit's at work in all of our cultures, but some that were not in this ancient culture. And he's saying here, something has to shift. They were still working from that base. That was a problem also with money and giving we talked about last Sunday in that church. And this is what God always does in some ways. Well, Paul is taking on the sinful, foolish speech and the sinful boasting to make a point. In some ways, God is always doing this. And this is glorious good news. Jesus is entering into the brokenness of humanity. He takes on the, 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 the challenges of being in a body. He takes on the sins of humanity on the cross. In the Old Testament, God condescends to their ancient tribal violence in order to bring them out of it, to move them forward. And Paul is saying, in some ways, he's being cruciform. He's being like God always is, entering into the mess, not considering himself aloof or above it, in order to transform it from the inside out. 
He's entering into this. God has called him for this season to do this. God meets us where we're at, but he doesn't leave us there. Paul, in some ways, by playing the holy fool, is being more like Jesus than any of their leaders who are claiming cultural aloofness and whatever the culture said was, was shiny and proper. He enters in cruciformity. Okay, got to keep moving. We're not doing communion today, by the way. Just want to say, so, so chill out if you're worried about time. We'll, we'll spend a little time with this passage. He goes on in verse 20, For you put up with someone who makes slaves of you. Talking about these false teachers who appear to actually be more holy Christians, more box checkers, more in line with, with Judaism and a Jewish Christian mashup. He said, if someone makes slaves of you to false rules, we can fill out those things. He said, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone behaves arrogantly towards you, if someone strikes you in the face, and sophists, these, these, rhetoric, these rhetoric, these speech makers, uh, often did these kinds of behaviors. Now, to be clear, these folks obviously didn't see that they were the false holiness crowd, that they were the rules enslaving crowd, they were the exploiting crowd, they were the taking advantage, insulting, and being violent crowd. But Paul is telling this, that the Jesus plus whatever leaders are actually enslaving them, are actually leading them astray. Now he's, he's naming charges here. What was the problem with some of these folks? And it is easy and it is tempting to be drawn in by that which is culturally acceptable and that which if it's just a little bit of Jesus peanut butter on top of something that we're not actually changing. That's an old, old thing that I used to say. A little Jesus peanut butter instead of the whole thing being Jesus, right? And so verse 21, to my disgrace, I must say that I was too weak for that. He's poking at him. He said, I was too weak to enslave you, to give you a whole list of false rules, to, 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 to uh, uh, verbally abuse you, to be a spiritually abusive leader. I was too weak to be that kind of leader. Now he's poking at him and he's, he's revealing stuff. In fact, a good leader doesn't do these things is what he's saying in the kingdom of God. It's upside down. But whatever anyone else dares to boast about, again, I'm speaking foolishly, I also dare to boast about the same thing. Too weak, he was charged with. Too ugly, not speaking well enough, not structured enough. We should not listen to him, but we have a better version of Jesus. Oh, by the way, Jesus is probably not enough. You also need to do all of these other things if you're going to be in this new church thing. They were trying to co-opt the whole gospel. I've had this charge in my ministry over the years. You're too weak, Shell. Why don't you just drop the hammer and speak the truth? Whew, I've heard that one for 25 years. I want to demonstrate the truth and create an environment where the truth sets people free. And I have learned over the years that there's a time for prophetic denunciation, and it is rare. And it's mostly for the people who think they're holier than everyone else, as Jesus does. But most of us, even those of us who come from highly religious backgrounds, like myself, we need to hear about God's love. We need to hear about our original belovedness. We need to hear the weak message of a God who lets us kill him on the cross because in that is the ancient mystery and magic, to use that word as C.S. Lewis does, of the faith of following Jesus. In that, the power of God is revealed and that's where revival happens and that's where life change happens. It never happens by giving domineering power over lists of rules. We can talk about vice and virtue lists in the New Testament, but how life is changed is through the law of love. That is how we are changed. Fear will only get you so, so far. Love gets you all the way. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. But oh boy, the false teachers of Corinth, he was there to condemn the world. They had all the rules and they were going to be abused and slapped around. And the false holiness crowd always promises this glittering thing, but it never delivers because it is an angel of light. It is not the true gospel. Jesus saved the truth bombs for the religious folk. He saved it for people like me who were raised in highly religious environments. I am still working through some of that stuff to break them free. He welcomed in table fellowship the notorious righteous person, the false holiness crowd, and the notorious sinner in table fellowship. Because holiness is caught more than it is taught. Holiness is experienced through transforming love. Holiness is when you are overwhelmed by the goodness and the beauty of God and you choose then to turn and begin to make changes in your life. That is how true holiness comes about. It's caught over inclusion versus shouted across the street with a placard. And perhaps I've been too weak over the years, but I know that there are hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands in the kingdom of God because of that kind of approach. And I know of others that have been turned away and the doors of the kingdom were slammed on their face like Jesus and the Pharisees and the woes. He says, woe to you Pharisees and teachers of the law. You major in all of the lists while you are at the same time slamming the gates of the kingdom on people who are trying to get into the kingdom of God. I don't want to be that pastor on that day that Jesus says to me, you slammed the gates of the kingdom on faith. You thought you were doing, but your false holiness has damned you to hell, Shell, because you spent so much time on that and not enough time outrageously loving people into life in the kingdom of God. That's not even in my notes, but that's good. You ought to say amen. <laughs> Perhaps I know a man who let a questionable woman touch his feet with her hair and she was transformed. Holiness is contagious. I know a man who let a homeless, urine-smelling man give him a hug, and that man experienced dignity. I know a man who touched someone with a severe skin disease, and instead of that man being polluted, the disease was healed. I know a man who went into a violent area of the city of the night, but his presence there began to transform it. This is important stuff here. If you don't think it applies to any of you, I got news, it does. He leads with empathy, for that is the upside-down power of God. All right, let me keep going. i got to land this. Woo, somebody say, land it, Michelle. Get out. All right. He goes on and says, well, they're claiming to be Hebrews. So am I, verse 22. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. We learn more about those seeking to wrench the church to a different place in this context of Corinthians than keeping Jesus at the center. They want the church to follow the Jewish law and the Midrash. They want to be the list keepers, the rule makers, and set up judges to make the church purer and stronger. But Paul says, if you want to play that game, I can play it and beat you at it. And when I do, I will throw away the winnings and the trophy. I am more holy by the law than they ever could be, Paul says to them. But wait, there's more. It's like an info commercial. He keeps going. Like, okay, Paul, I feel, I, I get it. I, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed here. <laughs> Give me some hope here, buddy. And, and he'll get there, but not yet. He's got some more. He says, are they servants of Christ? And he says, I reminder, I'm talking out of my mind. I'm playing by their rules for just this moment. I'm even more so. With much greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with more severe beatings, facing death many times. Ben Witherington says this, biblical scholar, 
So this, the difference between Paul and the adversaries is that he saw his weaknesses as the primary sphere. Hear this. Paul saw his weaknesses as the primary sphere for the manifestation of the divine Holy Spirit anointing power of God to set people free. He did good works, yes. He did signs and wonders and power of the Spirit, but the weakness, he says, is where the Holy Spirit really shines through. Your greatest breakthroughs are at the end of your strength, not at its beginning. Your greatest breakthroughs are when you realize that, yes, I need more. I need something beyond myself. When you stop maintaining and being the one who maintains the boundaries and the walls, and you stop being the one about the fences, and you stop being concerned about everyone else's sin, and you finally get to a point where you're concerned about the log in your own eye, that is where there's power. When we acknowledge our weaknesses... That is the primary sphere for the manifestation of the power of God. And God help the church that forgets that because we think we're manifesting our own holiness. And oh, look how good we are, Lord. Not to go like full school old fundamentalist on you, but I believe the prophet Isaiah has, I think it was Isaiah that said this, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, and yet we kept trotting them out. So he says, I will boast in my weakness. This is what gives me the right to speak into your lives and circumstance, not my credentials that the Roman, Greco-Roman, and the Jewish convert culture admired. He's making a parody of what they looked for in public leaders and those claiming to be more approved and more Jewish than Paul was. All right, we're almost at the end. Verse 24, 25. Five times. And yet there's more. I can one-up all of you all. Five times I received from the Jewish leadership 40 lashes, mine less one. That means he was whipped with a, with a leather whip 39 times minus one. 40, three, excuse me, five times. And oh, by the way, he was a global traveler. He went to Singapore. Three times I was beaten with a rod. No, wait, that was ancient Roman punishment. No. <laughs> Caning, okay, okay, that was, that was a bad joke. I was trying, I was trying, but. Three times I was beaten with a rod, Roman punishment. And then I received a stoning, which is more like a crowd's mad at you, and now they're giving you like the immediate death sentence. Three times I suffered a shipwreck. We know at least one of those stories in the book of Acts. A night and a day I spent adrift in the open sea. That's a bad kayak voyage. This speaks for himself. What causes a man to put up with this kind of torture from people he's bringing a message of Jesus to and still love outrageously? Yeah, there's some trauma-informed work to do, we would say in our late modern world. But he is convinced that Jesus is everything, has risen from the dead, and the whole world must hear. He is convinced that Jesus is worth it all. He will not let stand Jesus be co-opted by powers and being totally enculturated that, that, the, that Jesus is no longer the Savior in this church and do not, people who do not understand resurrection love. Okay, I truly am. Last verses got one more set of lists and then his escape from Damascus. He says, I've been on journeys many times. I've been in dangers. And he gives more catalogs, rivers, robbers, my own countrymen. So his own ethnic group. And then people that were not his own ethnic group, the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, Vancouver, greater lower mainland, out in the middle of nowhere, BC, dangers in sea, dangers from false brothers. People who should have been for him but weren't. Oh, Jesus, we could preach a whole sermon on that right there. People that should be for you. T.D. Jakes has a great message on don't confusing comrades and confidants. <laughs> anyway, all right. Verse 27, in hard work and toil, through many sleepless nights, I want you to hear the pathos in this. I want you to hear the, the one-upping and also the, the, the parody he's making. 
in hunger and thirst and many times without food and cold without enough clothing. And oh, by the way, the Roman audience was hearing this as this is not the stuff we look for in leaders. Our leaders demonstrate confidence. Our leaders demonstrate that they've got their stuff together. Our leaders don't share this kind of stuff they would have seen as shaming, incredibly shameful stuff. And he keeps going and going with stuff that they said, if if you went through that, you would hide it except for certain kind of exploits. But again, you focus on the glory. He's not focusing on the glory for himself. He is again naming shameless things, not enough clothing, cold and water, not enough provision. And apart from all these things, I was also anxious for the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? He says, who is led into sin? Do I not burn with indignation? Counterfeit holiness. The chief mark, the old Scottish pastor, preacher, Andrew Murray said this, the chief mark of counterfeit holiness is a lack of humility. Every seeker after holiness needs to be on his guard, less unconsciously. What was begun in the spirit will be perfected in the flesh, and pride will creep in where presence is not least expected. So he's one-upping, but with a list that is shameful, they would have heard is mostly shaming. And then finally we get to the end of our passage this morning. And he begins a transition into the last fool's speech, which brings up beautiful things. He says, if I must boast, I will boast about the things that show my weakness. How many churches would vote him out of membership right there? And then he stops and he gives a little praise, a doxology. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. And then he talks about deliverance and liberation from those seeking to destroy the message and the messenger. And he ends this passage before we transition, and we'll get into the rest of this in the weeks ahead, but he says this, in Damascus, Here's one more for you guys. In Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. Things did not go well. We read about some of his Damascus work in the book of Acts, by the way. So the powers were coming down on Paul. And of course, in ancient Rome, there was this wonderful uh, trophy that you could get, the Corona Moralis. And in Rome, if you were a soldier or a centurion, and you led yourself, or you went over the wall when Rome was sieging a city to expand, you know, Rome was peace and security, right? Peace and security. Empires always claim peace and security, but they're murderous, genocidal. Uh, that's the problem of imp- imperial language. But if you were helping Rome conquer a new city, and you were the soldier that made it over the wall, and they would lay siege to cities for weeks to weaken the populace, but eventually somebody had to begin to go over the wall to begin to take down the enemy, right? If you were the first over the wall, and you lived to survive, and you got yourself all the way back to Rome, you could claim this highest honor, the Corona Moralis, for a soldier, a centurion. You could claim that honor if you got over that wall first, because you led the charge over the wall in to take the city to expand the glories of Rome and the empire. And you could receive this wonderful recognition and honor to you and your family and descendants if you lived through that and made it back. The Corona Morales over the wall, leading the charge. Military honors. What was the highest military honor in Canada? To be like the Victoria Cross? Is that Canada? What is that? I don't know what that is. Some, you know, that was a thing. <laughs> Purple Heart in the U.S. Like this is, you know, brave, extreme bravery over the wall. And Paul tells this story to wrap up this whole long list of one-upping He's been one-upped by the one-uppers, and now he's one-upping them to show them the foolishness of it all, that where the real power lies. He says this, verse 33, the king was guarding the city, I was trapped within, but I was let down in a rope basket, probably normally for hay and feed for animals, through a window in the city wall, 
and escaped his hands. The climax of this whole list, he declares, sometimes I fight, but in this case, I climbed the wall, but in the wrong direction, out of the city. <laughs> he is putting his weakness on display. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of humans, of men. And that is where the power is. So this morning as we conclude, and I'm going to invite our worship team to come up and lead us in a song in just a second, it comes down to this. Paul is confronting a kind of leadership, a kind of way of going about Christianity that North American churches desperately need to hear again. It is not about the shiny show. It is not about false rules, holiness through hounding. It is that stuff ultimately just puts us back into the same bondage and vicious cycle of cultural things that Jesus is trying to set us free from and make us alive in. N.T. Wright says this, Paul has won not the corona moralis, the crown of the wall, but the crown that really matters, the crown Christi, the crown of Jesus, the Messiah. His master was taken off to die in disgrace, Jesus died in disgrace outside of the city walls, the wrong direction. The Apostle Paul was let down the basket and ran away, and the Corinthians and us, we need to stand. Sometimes some of our normal values that we impose on the church, particularly some of our conservative values, sometimes progressive ones, and stand them on their head to live the upside-down life, the right way up to be true servants of Jesus, Messiah. Paul is a sinner by their cultural standards, but he is faithful and righteous by God's work and the kingdom of God's standards. Are you judging someone's worth or actions by cultural standards that you might need to be saved from in order to embrace God's new way of life? If we're going to be a church that truly welcomes pilgrims on the journey, we need to understand this deeply in our hearts. And sometimes it's okay to use absurdity and humor to expose the devil's work in the churches, for that is the one thing we're told the devil does not appreciate being mocked. And Paul is mocking the devil's work within some of these lives. And he wants them to be saved. He wants them to turn, by the way. He wants all of them to come to the knowledge of Jesus and to re-embrace it. He wouldn't say all this if he didn't have hope that some of them would hear this and be like, oh, I've been carrying that burden. I've been leading that charge. I need to let it go. And let Jesus enter in. And finally, I would say this. Embrace the way of the cross. It is the path to true peace, joy, and love. Embracing the shame of the other, including those who our cultures tells us to exclude. This is where revival happens. When the Holy Spirit moves, he tears down walls. He brings, he expands the kingdom of God. And there is a turn, a righteous turn towards God. But here's the thing, repentance does not come to people by beating them over the head. Repentance doesn't come by false holiness. Repentance comes from a heart that is moved with compassion, that is under compunction of the Holy Spirit. That is how true life change happens. And we get it wrong so often. We want to think that we can impose it, and that is not how we are changed. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Lord, I confess that as a pastor, sometimes it's tempting to simplify. For all the laws and rules I could come up with are sometimes seems on the surface so much easier than the law of love. 
And yet you tell us that those viceless, those, those virtueless are ultimately empowered by love, as Paul says to the Galatians, even where he quotes lists of sins and lists of virtues of the whole, uh, fruits of the Holy Spirit. He says this, but ultimately the only thing that matters is faith working through love. Faith working through love brings about awareness of walking by the Spirit, brings about the power to live differently. We can't walk this world in righteousness without that power, without that sanctifying work of the Spirit. And, and in fact, when we try to do it without, we create truthful statements that are diabolically evil in what they produce in people's hearts. So Lord, may we wrestle with this today. May we hear from Paul. And may we apply it to our lives that we could be a church where true righteousness flourishes because we create the environment for your Spirit to work that we become a community of outrageous love. And as we are rooted in that, we trust that your spirit is at work. And Lord, forgive me when I want someone to get on my holiness timetable for their life instead of being a participant in your grace in their life. Oh God, forgive me when I want them to be on my timetable for where I think they should be with you in their life instead of cooperating with you to create an environment where I can let grace flow through me to them, Lord. And not just me, but all of us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would move in this house and amongst your people here. We say, come Holy Spirit, and may we risk some foolishness for the sake of your wisdom to break forth. We repent from trying to play your part, God. We repent from trying to be those religious gatekeepers we want to tear down the walls, but we're going to do it centered on Jesus. Keeping our arrows moving towards you, your death, your life, your exposure outside the city walls. Because that is where true victory lies. The way up is the way down. <laughs> the way down is the way up. Waken our spiritual minds to comprehend what you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.